1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord has said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among, among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me, for him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abimadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Turama. Please keep your Bibles open with me. We continue to see just amazing moments as we're working through this sermon series in the history of redemption. This week being the seventh week alongside of the Bible reading plan and reflections at BibleTogether.com. You can visit there to, to catch up and do uh, read some reflections and so on uh, if that is helpful to you. We're tracing God's revelation of his purpose to redeem a people for himself out from a rebellious creation. This is this history of redemption that we're seeing unfold before us. Last week, we were introduced to Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And then we met Samuel, the the son for whom she prayed and whom she handed over to the service of the worship of the Lord at the place of worship in Shiloh. Uh, This is the context in which 1 Samuel begins as we continue to see the unfolding of the history of redemption. What we see this morning is we see Samuel at work, and we see him working as the last of the judges, and his work as the last of the judges is to anoint not one, but two kings for the people of Israel. We're going to ask what part do kings have to play in moving forward God's story of redemption? We've seen a variety of figures. We've seen mediators like Moses or 
Aaron as a priest. We've seen Joshua as a, as a conquering sort of a kingly figure, but not himself a king. He's a warrior who goes before the people. We've seen the judges that, that do at moments move in for a season for a specific purpose of rescue. We've seen Samuel, who's sort of this, uh, this prophet, priest, and judge, but not a king. And now we're going to consider what role do these kings play? Surely this is the case, that though the Lord anoints a king for his people, he does that right here in today's passage, the Lord has not, listen, the Lord has not abdicated his one position as the one sovereign of the people. He anoints a king, but the Lord remains the sovereign, and he it is who sees his people, and he it is who shepherds his people according to the purpose of redemption. He does not hand his people over to a king for the king to do as the king pleases. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you remain the father. You remain the ruler. You remain the creator. But uniquely, as you call a people to yourself, you remain our father and king. You are the sovereign. Lord, I pray this morning that, that we would see ourselves situated under your righteous rule and that we would begin to long in our hearts by the work of your word and spirit for the things that are according to your purposes in this world. You would humble us, Lord. Thank you for your grace in this word this morning and for Samuel 16. We ask for your work among your congregation, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna begin by considering Samuel. We do have to look at Samuel for a moment. We can't just have his birth and then go all the way to the end of his ministry here, really, but with the anointing of a second king without considering Samuel, but we're going to consider Samuel and his two kings. Again, he anoints two kings, Samuel, He's been faithfully leading the people by pointing them to the Lord. Samuel is one of the uniquely faithful figures in the scriptures. There's very little negative that we could say about Samuel. He's remarkably faithful. Here's, we're going to look at a couple of the passages that leads up to chapter 16. If you want to turn with me there as you keep your scriptures open, I would invite you to. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, just a few pages before, in verse 3, it says, Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away all the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, the people have enemies. The people have needs. The people have circumstances. But the people also have sin and idolatry. And Samuel is doing what a faithful leader does, who's following after the Lord, is he points them to the Lord and the putting away of their sin and idolatry and calls upon them to do business with the Lord by trusting him, that the Lord will deliver them. His role as a judge is less like a king, and his role as judge is more like a prophet and a priest. It's not so much that he commands the people what to do, 
It's more that he reminds them of the word of the Lord and his covenant. This will, listen, as we see kings anointed, as we see kings come and go in future chapters, over the course of really the majority of the remainder of the story here, God will still send prophets. Kings are going to come and go, but the business of the prophets are much like the business of Samuel, whose business it is to remind them of the word of the Lord and this covenant with them. You're going to see this interplay between Samuel and God. The people begin to cry out for a king for themselves. And, and they say that they cry out for a king for themselves so that they can be like the nations that surround them. If you go another page over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. The king, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. It's because that they have rejected the Lord as their king and their sovereign, and the Lord has not abdicated that position one bit. It's because they've rejected the Lord that they're rejecting the Lord's messenger and judge. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall be over them. Samuel has been leading the people for years, and yet they're crying out for a king. You be Samuel for just one second, all right? I'm going to pull you out from being Samuel here real quick. But just be Samuel and hear the people crying out for someone to judge them. And you're like, <clears throat> you know, you know, I've been, I've been doing that. And, and the Lord is comforting Samuel and explaining that the true gravity of the circumstance by, by revealing that their cry for a king is in reality a rejection of the Lord himself as their king. So Samuel then tries to explain to the people that there is no good king. You're crying out for a king, but there is no good king. Though the people cry out, they won't be satisfied and they won't be pleased by what they're crying out for when they get it. Now you know what that's like, right? You know what you want. And you know what would happen if you got it. <laughs> All right, I can identify with what's going on here. The Lord is good and he's a righteous king. He's generous and he's kind, but this will not be the experience of the people under any earthly king or government. Listen to the way that Samuel explains it. In, in 1 Samuel 8, I'm going to kind of skip my way through this. 1 Samuel 8, beginning at verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them as chariots and various other warriors, he says. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to your, his servants. He will take the tenth of the grain in your vineyards and He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to work, his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You want a king. You will be his subjects. Let's remember that the Lord called the people out of Egypt. And what did he call the people out of Egypt to be? They called the people of Israel out of Egypt to be his son. 
but their experience of a king will be that they will be his slaves. And this is what they're asking for. They don't, be, want, to, don't want to be the sons of God. We want to be slaves of a king. And this is where we see the true error of their cry for a king. They're not asking for a leader who will lead them in paths of righteousness so that they would be reminded of the word of the Lord as Samuel did. See, they only had a guy like that. That perhaps they could have said, Lord, will you make Samuel our king? He leads us exactly the way that you want a people led. What if Samuel could be our king? Now, that's not their cry. What they're asking for is a warrior leader. They're asking for someone who will rescue them from their enemies. They have a circumstantial need, and it's the Philistines. And they're saying, we want to get rid of them, so we need a really tall, strong dude who can be a warrior for us. Do they not remember that the Lord had promised he will establish them in the land, and he will remove their enemies out from before them? But they don't remember the Lord and his promise that God had covenanted with them to establish them as his people, and to establish them in a land of his choosing. And that's why 1 Samuel 10, 19, continues saying, but today you have rejected your God. Your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distress, and you have said, set a king over us. We don't want to be reminded of the way of righteousness. We don't want to be reminded of the commands and the statutes. We don't want to be reminded of the covenant, its blessing, its curse, and redemption. We want a king to rescue us. The Lord has promised to be their hope and salvation, and yet the people are looking for someone who would save them. You and I both know how this works. You know what it is to face a difficulty and a trial in a particular moment and a circumstance. I don't know, perhaps you're in one right now. How often is it that in that difficulty and trial, you think to yourself, now, how am I going to get myself out of this mess? What sort of conventional wisdom can I use to fix this? How have I seen other people in the nations around me solve this problem? What great leader can I look to to help me out here? You see, to this day, we are still under the instruction to turn to the Lord. Today, we would be wise to consider the word of the Lord in our distress. I don't. (laughs) I know that's not my inclination. As much as I told you to identify with Samuel for a second just a moment ago, I'm, I'm identifying with the people real easy, real easy. And so we come to Saul. God directs Samuel to anoint Saul, the Benjamite, as a king. And Saul wasn't exactly trying to become a king, let's be clear. He wasn't rampaging or establishing himself. He actually went and hid under a table when they came looking for him. Hard thing to do because of Saul's stature. He definitely was kingly material as far as the world was concerned. He was a head taller than anyone else, the scripture tells us. He was from a good family with a good reputation, all right? He's, yeah, pick that dude if you want a kingly warrior. And Samuel set before Saul the duties of a king. And on that day, he was anointed as the king that the people were asking for. It doesn't take long for Saul to do exactly what Samuel said he would do. He would serve himself rather than the Lord with his responsibilities as king. Yes, he would go before them. Yes, he would make war before them. But he would serve himself, and Samuel rebukes him. 
If you turn forward just a little bit more, 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. I want you to hear just in that right, right there, the Lord would have established Saul forever. The problem is not the king. The problem is what the people are asking for and the way that the king would lead them because the Lord has not abdicated his throne to an earthly king. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over this people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. The Lord would have interwoven the dynasty of Saul with the lasting covenant that he made with Israel, but by serving himself and failing to keep the Lord's command, Saul comes under curse instead of blessing. All that's happening here is a playing out of what God had promised back in Deuteronomy, you remember? We, we have blessing, and Saul could have had that, and he could have walked in it forever. But instead, God also promised curse. If you won't keep my commands and my statutes, and he doesn't, and so God does keep his covenant. And the covenant is curse. This is part of Samuel's explanation to Saul of why the kingdom has been torn away. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, he says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God is just. Man, you should look for that in a king. <laughs> God is the only just king in the entire passage. God is just. Again, this is crucial and points us back to God's covenant with his people. If they would remember God's word and walk in it, they will know his blessing. And if they turn away from his word, they will know curse. This is God's promise. Blessing and curse are both the promise of God. But you remember how the Lord proclaims not only blessing and curse. You will also remember from Deuteronomy that the Lord also promises redemption. It's a very different thing. You earn blessing. You earn curse. Redemption, that's just what God decides to do. It's his work alone. Saul, their first king, had failed and the people failed. And the covenant's waiting. Blessing, but you didn't get it. Curse. That's the end, right? They should be cast off into exile, and all the promise of the curse should come upon them. Done. That was quick. But friends, we, we have to know that the Lord has a purpose that he's working out among the people. And his purpose is not merely blessing and curse. His purpose includes redemption. This is what he's revealing over and over again by his merciful work among them. The way of the people is rebellion. And if left to their own story, they would be cast off into exile and curse. But the purpose of the Lord is redemption. And he's telling his story. The people are telling their story. Their story is loud and clear. Their story is repeated throughout the book of Judges and now in Samuel and the Kings. It, the people are telling us a story, and their story from Adam to me is rebellion. That's our story. But the Lord is telling a simultaneous story. And his story is a story of mercy 
and redemption. In judgment, the Lord removes Saul as king, but in mercy and in continuing revelation of his purposes to save, the Lord gives another king, a king who would become the greatest precursor of the one true king who's yet to come. And here we are with David. God immediately sends Samuel to anoint a new king. Look at verse 1 of our passage this morning, verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, we're done. The story that the people have to tell has run its circle, and now we're going to listen to my story. We're going to hear the Lord's story. Samuel anointed Saul at great cost to himself, and Saul failed, and, Saul, and Samuel feels that loss. Surely now the people are under curse and judgment, but Samuel's business is not merely to feel the loss. Samuel's business is continue to hear the word of the Lord and trust in the way of the Lord, and he does. He does. Right in the middle of his grief, the Lord speaks, and he says, I'm doing something, Samuel. And Samuel says, okay. Okay, let's hear your story. The Lord commands Samuel to go and anoint a new king. I just want to pause for a second before we continue with the story in our passage today and just suggest this. We have a king problem. Uh, humanity, we have a king problem. Consider this. Adam and Eve were placed in the perfect garden kingdom for this purpose, that they would rule. They were literally royalty over all of creation. Here's first. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, this is God's word. This is not Adam and Eve saying, hey, let's make us king. <laughs> you know? No, this is God's word. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, of the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Yeah, check. Like, I got it. So everything. God gave all of creation to mankind for his good and for his rule. This is God's order and design to establish a king. What went wrong? Adam was a failed king. That was wrong. Adam and Eve were a failed royal family. This cre cre creature king, Adam and Eve, rejected the command of the creator king. I want you to see that. See, Adam is a creature king. And he still has a creator king. And a creator is the one who reveals the design for creation. And his design was that Adam was to be a creature king. And then he rejects God's, that creature king rejects God as the creator king. And it says, on my own, I shall live. On my own, I shall reign over my heart and over this kingdom that, yeah, you made. We know that there is a right rule and an order to the universe. You and I still know this. We know that on this side of the fall, we need a king on earth to lead and protect us in this right rule and order. We know that there's a right rule and order. And to this day, we sort of cry out for some government, some king, some means to establish that right rule and order. We know it. And we keep failing at this one central point. The king 
along with all those who are under him, keep rejecting the command of the creator king, who has not abdicated his position as creator, as order revealer, under whose order the king is to rule. It will remain a consistent theme throughout the remainder of our story, the rise and fall of those who reject the rule of the creator king. You would think that by watching the history of the world that our longing is actually for a wealthy power monster. I mean, just look at history. Look at what we keep doing. At least it seems that that's what we keep getting out of earthly rulers. Well, let me suggest that we keep getting it because we keep cheering it. Powerful monster kings. We only get glimpses, a few glimpses along the way, of those who are deeply flawed as you get to know them in history, and yet who show little moments of great-hearted courage and sacrifice. There are a few moments like that in the kings of history and the rulers and the governors. But one thing is clear throughout history and in every single civilization. We, as a humanity, have a longing for a perfect government to be embodied in one man. We have a longing for a perfect, rightly ordered government in creation. Perhaps running the risk of giving the whole sermon away, let me give you a little peek ahead. Isaiah. I would suggest this would be a good one just to sit here right in 1 Samuel 16, right in the margins of your Bible to remind you to go there again. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That is a human created order longing for a rightly ordered government. Will there ever be a son who is born that will institute and follow through on a rightly ordered or righteous government. Listen to what the next verse says. Verse 7, Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Listen, this, you want to talk big government? (laughs) Try a government of righteousness and peace of whose, I'm just quoting, increase. There is no end. It is right to long for an increase government of the righteous one under the rightly ordered king of creation on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. We're going to read about this today with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The Lord Almighty, it's translated often, is going to do that. The Lord is doing something. And he's doing something with an institution of a human government. And David, whom we meet this morning, is integral in God's plan to redeem Bring all things under his perfect rule. We are talking about the establishment of a perfect government, and we don't get it in our passage today. 
For the remainder of our time in our passage this morning, we're going to look at through two sets of eyes, first through the eyes of Samuel, and then we're going to look through the eyes of the Lord. Consider Samuel. It's interesting, one of the first things that our passage says is that Samuel looked. If you look at verses 1 through 5, we see the ongoing grief of Samuel and the tragedy of Saul's disobedience, but God's judgment is final and Samuel has been rejected as king. It's done. Saul even begged, you know, restore me. And, and Saul, Samuel's like, God's spoken. It's done. And we see the exercise of the blessing and the curse in Saul's life. And Samuel is sent to a man named Jesse, and that his sons would be brought before Samuel, and out from among them Samuel would anoint a king. Look at verse 6 now. And when they came, he, that is Samuel, looked. I think that's important to just pause and see. Samuel is using his eyes. He's exercising his discernment and the faculties of his discernment. And he looked. Verse 6, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Jesse's sons come before him. Eliab first, Samuel saw his appearance and his height of stature, and he thinks, that's the dude. I mean, no doubt. I mean, he's not a head taller like Saul was, but God sent me to this family, and so, I mean, this is the warrior king. This is the, this is the one. God says, nope. Not that one, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Eliab comes before Samuel and he's rejected. Evidently, height is not what the Lord is looking for. So they bring Abinadab, must have been a little bit shorter than his oldest brother, but he is next in line. So he may not have stature, but he does have station. And so he goes up before Samuel. No, the Lord says, no, I've rejected him. So they bring Shammah, the next. And they wind up bringing these three young men before Samuel. And we find out in the next chapter that these three young men are the fighting warrior men of valor of the family. And they go out in the next chapter with, with Saul, right? So, man, Jesse's brought his best, and the best have been rejected. And so Jesse says, okay, well, um, let's get the others. Brings a total of seven sons before Samuel. Maybe a new king will be one of the remaining brothers, and they'll grow up to be of stature and station, like Jesse figured the oldest three would be. And verse 10 says, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? (laughs) And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. I mean, everybody knows we're not going to do that one. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep, all right? And he can stay there as far as Jesse's concerned. It's interesting that Jesse doesn't bring nor call upon or mention David until he's asked to. It seems that much like Joseph, David is a bit of an outsider to his other brothers. We've seen this story before, but what's interesting about this one, even worse than Joseph, David seems to be an outsider to his father too. He's not even called on. He's, He's just the youngest with the sheep. The problem is not that Samuel looked. Samuel is right to use the faculties of his discernment. 
I think the problem in this passage is what Samuel is looking for, and that's actually what God corrects. Samuel seems to be looking for a Saul replacement. It makes sense. We're told a bit of why. You see, Samuel was the one who went and anointed Saul. Uh, Against his, his better judgment, he went and did what the Lord had released him to do. And Saul had failed, and he's grieving, and he says, well, Maybe we can just try that again. We'll we'll find a good one this time. He's looking for a Saul replacement, but what he should have been looking for was a God representative. Samuel is looking for a tall, strong warrior, but again, the Lord has promised to be the warrior king of the people. The Lord has promised that he would be the one who goes before them in battle. The singular question that should be on the mind of anyone who is looking for a king in Israel, and certainly for Samuel, is who will follow, not who will lead, who will follow the Lord into battles that the Lord alone will win? That's the right question. Not who's tall enough and strong enough to win battles that the Lord sends us into, but who is the one who trusts in the Lord. If you know the story, you know that David is a great king, and he's a great warrior king. But David's greatness is not actually in his might, as we get to know the story a little more. David's greatness is that he trusts in the Lord who saves. It's one of the first things that we see in in this battle between David and Goliath. We see one whose trust is in the Lord who saves. So many of the Psalms we have in scriptures are a record of how David does battle. You see, David leads the people in worship. David leads the people in worship before he would ever lead them in war. Why is character, that is the heart, so important as opposed to outward appearance? I think it's because God's doing something. He's putting on display not the greatness of a warrior king. He's putting on display his glory that we wouldn't be distracted. You see, the king, as goes the king, as goes the people. And if the king is great and mighty, the people think, will think that they too would need to be great and mighty. But if, what if the king worshiped the Lord? Perhaps, maybe, the people might glorify the Lord. The Lord is the salvation of the people. And he'll have a king who will follow him in leading the people. And it's going to be clear that the Lord is their hope and salvation. Now Samuel, he used his eyes, used the faculties of his discernment, and he discerned stature and station in the parade of sons that came before him. So let's consider now, what does the Lord see as the Lord uses the faculties of his discernment? Look at verse 7 again, if you go back with me. The Lord said to Samuel, do not... Look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Next verse, for the Lord sees. See, Samuel looked, but the Lord looks as well. The Lord sees, and the Lord sees the heart. In fact, only the Lord sees the heart. Imagine if the Lord would have said, Samuel, look into his heart. And Samuel's like, I just see a tall dude and a young guy, you know? I'm looking at these guys and I'm using the faculties of my discernment, but you, Lord, alone see the heart. Was there any way that we can glimpse the heart of a man? 
let me suggest that actually, actually Samuel had a little bit of access to glimpse the heart. Is it possible that one of the ways that we can access the heart of a man is by watching him worship? Perhaps it is what a man worships, what a man pursues, that this is what has captured his heart. Your worship will reveal your heart, certainly to the Lord. He knows your heart. But it will also reveal your heart to those who are around you. Look at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are not all of your sons here? There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, I don't know that we know anything about David's heart at this point, at least in this story. Samuel says, oh, a shepherd. I should have thought of a shepherd. That's the one. He knows how to like lead stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a skill set of David that Samuel should have been looking for. He's the youngest brother off keeping the sheep. But actually, if you look at the rest of the story, we find something about David. What kind of heart did David have? Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, he points out that the Psalms can tell us exactly what kind of David, what kind of heart David actually had. And which of the Psalms were surely composed while David was in these fields? I encourage you. This is a good time to turn over to Psalm 23. I think we find David's heart, a heart that was already being formed when Saul met him. David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And as much as that is true, as much as this king's shepherd, you see, he knows what it is to be a king. He knows what it is to be a shepherd. But he knows what it is that there remains a creator king and shepherd. And as long as that king is his shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. I shall not want David is satisfied and provided for in God. And that gives us a glimpse at David's heart. He leads me and he restores my soul. David followed God and David was strengthened by the presence of God. And look at verse three. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the problem with the kings that Samuel pointed out just a few minutes ago? right? For their namesake, they would enslave the people that belong to the Lord. And David's like, no, no, it's for his namesake. It's the Lord's name, which is great. And that's an essential reality for a king to know. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's hope is to dwell in the house of the Lord You see, a worldly king is jealous for his palace, but David is jealous for the house of the Lord. Who does David worship? What is the orientation of his hope? And in those things, we get a glimpse at the heart of a man. While Jesse's older sons were becoming men of valor, each one in their number and in their station, rising up the third and then surely the fourth and the fifth would become great mighty men of valor. David was in fields and he was being tutored by God. And he wrote songs 
about those days when he was tutored by his God. The Lord did not show up in the house of Jesse for the first time on the day that Samuel appeared in Bethlehem. The Lord had already been there, and he'd been doing a work in all of David's life long before Samuel shows up. There's a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of a man long before the Spirit rushes upon a man to do great things. There's a work in the heart of a man that takes place in shepherd fields. It's a far more quiet work. Let me suggest it's the work to circumcise the heart. We've already seen that. To bring a man, a woman, his creation, his people, to bring his people to follow the Lord by faith to become a people who worship his name and know that it's all about his glory. The Lord elects or chooses David. It's a huge purpose of this passage to show that the Lord scans down through humanity and he does not find those who are great that have some merit of themselves. But the Lord calls him, not because of his appearance nor because of his station in life. The Lord calls him according to what the Lord was doing in that young man's heart in a shepherd's field. The Lord calls according to the Lord's own design. The Lord's working in the heart of faith, a heart of faith into those who will follow him. Charles Spurgeon notes one more thing. By such marks... We can know our election. How do I know I belong to God? How how do I know that I'm not still wandering off after the prince of the power of the air? How do I know that I don't belong to the world, that I belong to the Lord, and uh, uh, that I'm a part of his redeemed people? How do I know? Let me ask you, do you see the marks of a shepherd king being fashioned in your heart? Are you satisfied with the provision of the Lord? Is he working that? Do you see evidences of God's grace to change your heart of worship? Are you strengthened by his word and his presence? Are you jealous for his glory? Is your one hope that you would dwell with him forever? Not get rescued from the bad things, but be rescued to the good king. Brothers and sisters, our confidence that we, would, that we have been called by God is not because we've done great things for him. Some of you are still waiting for that. Like you're jealous for the church. You're jealous for religion. You're jealous for the things that you've seen people before you do in the surrounding nations. You want to do great things, and then you'll know you're a great one in the household of God. You're Saul, at best. You're waiting to do great things. You're waiting to be exalted in a great station in this life. But we know that the Lord, because we have come to trust him, that we we follow him by faith, that we want to be with him forever. Let me suggest to you that there is one quick application. Do not despise your stature or your station. I saw some of you guys chuckle when I said the Lord didn't choose the tall one. (laughs) You're like, phew, (laughs) Don't despise your stature or your station. And man, that can mean so many things in a room like this. Do you have a strong, commanding presence? Do you have a beauty that draws people and their attention to you? Are you next in line for power and authority? 
David was dead last among the sons of Jesse. I find it interesting that even though the Lord was clear that he doesn't look on outward appearances, but looks on the heart, what does, he, what does Samuel tell us when we see David? Well, he's ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome. I mean, he kind of looks like a king. Maybe he's just not tall, you know, let him grow a little. But doesn't exactly sound unkingly. The point is that no matter your stature or your station, God has his own divine purposes because he has retained the throne of heaven. The purposes of God are not being worked out in stature and station. The redemption of God is a hidden thing. I think this is one of the most precious things that is so clear throughout the whole of the history of redemption. The, The redemption of God is a hidden thing being worked out in a human heart. A hidden work is only seen as we trust in the Lord by the orientation of transformed lives. Already transformed lives. Before we close, I call you to consider this one last thing. The Lord Jesus had no stature nor station. You know that, right? He he had nothing to draw us to him. Isaiah 53, verse 2 He grew up like him before a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Nobody walked by and said, maybe that's the Messiah. I mean, he's tall. He's good looking, super smart, bright eyes. No, he had no majesty in the flesh and was born in a stable to the son of a carpenter, as a son of a carpenter. And yet Hebrews says this about that man with nothing to commend him by the flesh. He is the radiance, this is Jesus, the king. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And all of creation will be brought before him to either made his footstool or his brothers with God as our father. All of creation. Brothers and sisters, we long for a true king. We long for a true king whose shoulders can bear the weight of a government without end. We long for a king of righteousness and a king of truth who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we found him because he came to us. King Jesus. The next words in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the redeemer, the king. Blessing, curse all fulfilled in Christ. What remains is that he has accomplished redemption. The grace of his death on the cross and the triumph of his resurrection are not only a victory over his enemies, their forgiveness of sin. For Adam's and Eve's, people like you and I and a shepherd in a field who are learning that it's not actually about us, is it, Adam, Eve, David? It's about the king and his glory. In Revelation, we look to the throne. What did we see? Worthy is the lamb 
who was slain. If you want to see something that has nothing to commend to you, a lamb who looks as though he'd been slain, except for we know what that is, then that's my hope. He was slain for me, that my sin would be forgiven. Has he been slain for you? This morning I call you, every one, every single one, trust in the name of the Lord. There's no other king coming. No other king will remain. No other idolatry, no other command will remain. Trust in the Lord and come under his gracious, just, eternal rule. Heavenly Father, it would be great grace to us if you would tutor our hearts now. Having heard your good news in Christ, that your spirit would tutor every heart. That you would grant to us the faith that we need to believe. We've believed many other things. We've proven our ability to be idolaters. But we have not proven our ability to believe. We need you. Lord, I pray that you would work in every single heart. And particularly in that heart that has never believed before. That today you would grant us faith. That you would bless us. And that you would keep us. And that we would come to love the story of, the, of redemption that has one king, King Jesus, forever. We ask that you would do this in our midst this morning by your word and spirit. We pray in King Jesus' name. Amen.